Hello to all you boys next door, mums and dads, new weds and nearly deads, and welcome to Dangerous Amusements, a podcast where we talk about the music of Elvis Costello. I'm Stu Arrowsmith, and in each episode I'll be joined by a special guest to chat all things Elvis, and I'll be asking them to help me compile the ultimate Elvis Costello playlist. Now remember, don't make any sudden movements, because these are Dangerous Amusements. I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by an academic and author who's written about various musical artists over the years, including Elvis Costello. Welcome to Dangerous Amusements, Professor Pam Thirschwell. Hi, Stu. Great to be here. Oh, it's great to have you on. How are you this morning? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I was just, it's its so great to actually be looking back at my life via Elvis Costello. I've been, in, you know, pulling out old ticket stubs and things. So I'm really, I'm really pleased to be here. Yeah, it's good fun. The preparation for doing an episode is good fun, isn't it? Mm, it is, it is. And I thought it's brilliant to have you on because you are, in your own words in one of your articles, a Costello train <laughs> spotter. And I think you are, you are among friends here. That's great. It's it's always nice to know when you don't have to explain your references, you know. Like, so. <laughs> so when did your love of Elvis begin? So probably a story that might be like other younger sisters and brothers and that it was older brothers who um, had the albums and got me started on all sorts of music, including like that I loved like Dylan and The Who. But what my first real memory is them listening to armed forces and it probably would have been close to when it came out so it would have been 79 or 80 so i would have been you know 12 13 years old um and i really loved green shirt that was my first elvis song that just really hit me um there was something about it that the the sound that really got to me um and i just you know after that went through my aim is true and all the you know just became the person i listened to all the time um so yeah. yeah something about that that line who put these fingerprints on my imagination has yeah. always stayed with me too you know it's just like that's what happened the, the fingerprints went onto my imagination at that point and i loved how angry he was and i was an angry 13 year old girl and at that point it didn't seem to matter to me too much that he was mostly angry at women you know it didn't it didn't hit me in a way that it it, it might have a little bit later but at the time it was just fabulous you know? yeah and i know from reading various other things that you've written um he would fit in well i think with some of the other people you were listening to at the time because you were i think a big dylan and Rolling Stones fan as well, right? Yeah, yeah. No, it became like I, I later as I as I sort of developed as a you know a feminist thinker and a person who cared about uh, you know issues about things like patriarchy. Um, that I was like, why did I love all these like really pissed off and you know um, just kind of contemptuous men? It became that I was thinking about. But they were they were all like both so smart and so sort of visceral in a way, and I I just was you know absolutely uh, like thought Elvis especially I think in a way because even back then I was probably already I was reading a lot too, um, and he was just his lyrics just blew me away and how smart and clever and you could go back to them all the time as well. Yes, I was going to ask you that because you sit here today as a reader in English, you're an author, mm. so the, the literary side of his work must have really, well, put those fingerprints mm. in your imagination, as you say. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And the puns and the, 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 I think one of the things that gets to me that I might be able to talk about some more when we hit the actual songs that we're doing is the combination of the puns, but the sort of, you know, emotional hit as well. So on the one hand, you'd think if you're being clever, clever, clever all the time, you wouldn't really be able to kind of access a kind of raw emotion. But he was always sort of able to do both, at least for me. Um, I'm thinking of a song like Riot Act, you know, when the when mm. the, the heat gets subtropical and the, the talk gets so topical. Um, and in some ways, it's just like a cheap rhyme, but the way he's singing it, you're like, you're there feeling it as well. I don't know if you have that sense of it too from your side but yeah yeah absolutely there's depths to what he's singing about as well and even as you say when he's talking about all oh, there's anger in the songs perhaps directed at the women mm. i don't think it's quite the same as some of the rolling stone stuff and elvis himself draws that comparison doesn't he between things like stupid girl and this year's girl elvis is if anything holding a mirror up towards men's attitudes towards women rather than necessarily expressing them himself so there's more than is going on on the surface I think isn't there there is absolutely at the same time I would say I'm, I'm you know I'm sure he would distance himself from some of that because in a way the difference between him and the Rolling Stones or in, in the early days in terms of their attitudes is like the Rolling Stones could get the girls right they were cool Elvis was the one who was getting rejected constantly and he was really angry about it and he was as you say it does get complicated if you hit something like party girl is he holding up a mirror to a society that is that obviously does terrible things to what it expects from women or is he just like you're not looking in my direction you know i do think you have to kind of take both those things into an account um but for me that's for me that's not a problem i like i like having complicated objects complicated shadows whatever you want to you know about that you know make you think about why do i think about gender relations in the way i do or why do we all you know um so so yeah but so i don't want to make excuses for some of that some of the early stuff but i still i still love it and think it's brilliant so there you go it's it is complicated and did you have other elvis fans among your peer group back then or were you a bit of an outlier I was not an outlier in that I had, well, I had my brothers and then I had my friend Suzanne, who is um, a, a friend of mine from high school. We both ended up moving to England at around the same time. We, we both, you know, came to England. So I'm from America. I'm from um, outside uh, the suburbs outside of Philadelphia is is where I, I um, hail from. Very kind of middle class suburban white girl upbringing um and anyway Suzanne and I like she loved Dylan and she loved Elvis and we were both obsessing about the lyrics at the same time and as it happens we both ended up living in England later in our lives so we you know we still see each other because she lives in London and I, I see her frequently and we go to Elvis together a lot so I had someone to kind of like do remember one time when we were dry we were actually at a point where our one of our parents was driving us somewhere for like it and it was a pretty long trip about an hour and we just sang imperial bedroom together all the way through like entirely so i had i i was lucky to have people to talk to about elvis and did you notice a difference in perceptions of elvis and his music when you came over to england there were things that i learned that's a really good question actually there were things that i learned like 
I never knew that Oliver's Army was about Oliver Cromwell. I didn't really know, you know, when I when I first came over to England, I was in college and I came and lived in London for a semester abroad, one of those things. Um, and I realized that there was just a ton of references I was not getting at all. Um, but I, I think, yeah, I mean, I think what was true for a lot of things is we tended to get things late. Um, certain things, like I remember Suzanne and I discovering the jam when their last single came out, you know, they'd already broken up yeah. and it was, it was just this, this band, it's great. And we were, you know, behind the times, um, with Elvis, at least my older brothers knew him already. So I, he came to me at a, you know, at the time and because he has had, because he stayed with us doing music for so long, that's, that's been good too. But yeah, I think, I, I think there were just a ton of, um, ton of, things I didn't get until later. Mm -hmm. um, like I really recognize, like some a song like Shipbuilding, which is stunning and beautiful, but unless you kind of feel, uh, understand the history with Thatcher and the Falklands, and it wasn't until I lived over here for a while that I really got it, so. Mm -hmm. Okay, now I've caused you immense stress over the last couple of weeks by asking you to narrow down this love of Elvis into five tracks to add onto the playlist. Each of those tracks comes from a different decade of his career. The playlist is called Ashtrays of Emotion, and it'll be on the website, dangerousamusements.co.uk, at the end of the season. I mean, firstly, apologies for making you choose, as with all of my guests. How have you found that process? It was hell. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm dying to tell you it was hell. Um, it, was, it was really hard, and in the end, I didn't choose my favourite, Elvis songs I just I kind of couldn't um but also also because the 70s and 80s I could have had basically all the albums but also just because I chose ones that I want to talk about or bring up something you know either important in my life or something I just find really interesting about about his songwriting um so in the end when I when I separated it out from my most beloved Elvis songs it became a little easier but but really I still think I'm, I'm still mourning Lipstick Vogue which you know I didn't I didn't choose Lipstick Vogue and was why or you know everything on Imperial Bedroom but yeah. what can you do you've got to make choices in this life so. <laughs> okay well before we go to the first song that you have picked tell me about Lipstick Vogue then why was that uh one that you were going to go for oh it's just so I also just you know don't say you love me if it's just a rumor don't say a word if there is any doubt sometimes I think that love is just a tumor you've got to cut it out it was it's just that that rush of rage um and so you know so driving I mean I remember putting it on a dance tape once back when you made dance tapes in the you know, when I was in high school, and and you really can't really dance to it. You just kind of jump up and down in a in a um, thing. But it's just that 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 album is fantastic. But that was just one of those my ang my favorite angry Elvis song, and a lot of the songs are angry songs. But it it just it just really hit me. So you, the song that you've chosen for is from the nineteen seventies. Eventually, the one that you've settled on, less than zero. With a swastika tattoo There is a vacancy waiting In the English voodoo Carver beef for vandal On the field to boss head When it's had a number That maybe you'll take him to bed To wish him he's alive Or he wishes he was dead 
is this is for historical reasons for me in that I, I, I you know, I, I became a, what an English professor, as you say, um, and was doing a dissert, PhD dissertation that was on Henry James, but then there was a call for papers for a book called Reading Rock and Roll. And I was like, I want to write about Elvis Costello. Um, and I want to write about this song. So I sent in a, you know, kind of abstract proposal and got accepted. So my very first publication was on Less Than Zero. And I realized when I wrote it, I was it, I was talking about the Brett Easton Ellis novel, Less Than Zero, and also about Nick Hornby's book, High Fidelity. But really, they were kind of talking about the books was kind of an excuse to talk about the song, because <laughs> the song itself is so, just so interesting to me and what he does with it, um, the fact that it's Oswald Mosley, but then he does a Dallas version where it's, uh, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald, and you're getting, you're getting like the history of fascism and nastiness in America and in Britain in this condensed into this one song. Um, and what it does for me is it really gets to the heart of the subtitle of Armed Forces as emotional fascism, right? And it's, it's the way that he combines thinking about the personal and the political that I just find absolutely brilliant on this song. So um, yeah, there's a lot of really like scary things happening in it. It's yeah. a, it's a, it's a, you know, like along with something like watching the detectives, it's like a novel. So it just seemed like a good one for me to go to. Yeah. Yeah. Costello said it came from my getting very angry watching this old fascist on television being buttered up and generally accepted as if the mists of time had somehow diminished his crime. I only wrote that song because I was angry. And as you say, there's a Dallas version as well. Which way round would you have heard those? Was this still when you were in America? Yeah, I would have heard it in America, but honestly, I didn't hear the Dallas version. I heard the, the, um, the, you know, I didn't actually know the Dallas version until much later. Um, and yeah, I think, I think it's that it's the sort of anger that's, that's partly about sort of dehumanization. It's also about people watching TV. It's like watching TV, becoming too stupid to recognize things. Being, I mean, that the line about, you know, they said they heard about a couple living, said they heard about a couple living in the USA, said they traded in their baby for a Chevrolet. Let's talk about the future. Now we've put the past away. It's so, um, it, it, the, the anger is, first of all, it's towards America, which is interesting as well. There's a, the sort of like a stereotype of the dumb Americans or the, um, which um, might have been really, you know, unpleasant to me, but I didn't take it that way because I think at that point I was like, you know, angry at the world mm. too and just found his sort of smartness about thinking about the American dream as this false thing where you're you're striving for Chevrolets and you're actually leaving the babies aside or putting them in front of the TV sets where they're seeing these horrible things. Um, but he's always been really interested in, in the mediation of things like violence, of like, of watching this on TV, almost in the background in the song, isn't it? They're, they're, now I, I should have the lyrics in front of me. I forgot. <laughs> there aren't they had like they're having sex while this is going on practically. Yeah. Um, and there's something quite uh, yeah, just just really scary about it. Yeah, and in your article you wrote Elvis Costello's music criticizes the culture of consumption as fully as it participates in it. Yeah, I mean one of the things 
about Elvis, which isn't always true for Dylan, is he's always implicated in the loathing is always self-loathing as well. Um, and for me, I know that doesn't sound like a good thing, but for me, it's like, it's better. It's like he recognizes there's this problematic situation. He's really angry at the girl or he's really angry at the radio or he's really, but actually he's a part of it and he has to kind of take that on himself. And I feel like his his lyrics do that um uh really well and that that moment i'm sure you've talked about it with many other guests but that moment on saturday night live where he switches my, my thought was that he's just like is he, he's sort of almost saying less than zero is just too smart for you guys mm-hmm. you, you audience you're not going to get it so i'll go and i'll do this this blunt instrument radio radio which yes. is just like that i don't know is that how you read it or not what's your Possibly. I think what's really interesting is that if you go back and look at the contemporary reviews of Less Than Zero when it was released, it, that fits in with what you're saying, and that had already been noticed by um, the music press as well. So the Melody Maker review at the time described it as album material, not for the charts, and the NME said, great record, doesn't have a snowball's chance in hell. And, of course, they're both right as he releases it as a single, and it fails to chart. So, yeah, you're right, it doesn't quite connect on on that sort of general audience level but of course has become one of the real fulcrum tracks of his entire career yeah yeah and but also just so catchy you know like as well like it never it doesn't give up on that and and that everything means less than zero and and it was interesting that someone like postmodern writers, postmodernism is, I have to say that in quotes because everybody argues about what it actually is and I don't like um, using it in a way that that's that's too loose but but like a and a writer like Brett Easton Ellis in his novel Less Than Zero it's just about it's just in some ways it's just signifying a kind of nihilism like a kind of like nobody cares I'm you know I'm young rich Californian teenagers doing whatever they want in a world that nothing seems to matter but of course, like Elvis is really angry. He's he's the you know, and the, it, actually, even in the book, there's a poster of Elvis on the wall who's like a judge. He's like a he. He is saying that when he says everything means less than zero, less than zero, less than zero, he's really saying it shouldn't. It does, but it shouldn't mean less than zero. Everything means a lot more than that. Um, and that's what that that kind of combination. Um, uh, so, so I think the, the the sort of slight the anger and the the contempt in some ways for his audience that you see in those early days, which is an act, but it's also not always. I think it's a combination. Is a, is sort of a way of saying like we should be better than this. You know, we should be fighting back. Your choice for the playlist from the 1980s comes from the album Get Happy, released in 1980, and the track is New Amsterdam. 
It is. I adore this track. I have to say, and I, I, you know, when I was struggling, the 80s was the time I was struggling with most because literally everything off of Imperial Bedroom, almost everything off of King of America, I can I could talk for a long time about. And there's so many great songs from from the 80s. And in some ways, Get Happy, I never listened to as much as an album. I loved certain songs off of it. But this one, I guess the personal meaning is just that I moved to England for the first time in 1986 um, and then have been back and forth here and then have been living here solidly for the last 30 years. So I'm an American, displaced American. And the, you know, the line back in London, they'll take you to heart after a little while, though I look right at home, I still feel like an exile. Um, just gets me in the gut um, in in many ways. And I think he writes brilliantly about that feeling of being between continents and, and, and you know, um, but in this one, I, I, I think I love the way, I love the sound. Um, it, it's another one where you get all this wordplay almost out of control. Didn't he at some point say like, that he just can't stop making puns. It's like almost a, a pathology for him. Or... Yeah, and particularly in this period, that was uh, very much a feature, wasn't it? And as you say, there's there's a lot here to dig into, isn't there? There, there is, but it's that, you know, till I step on the brake to get out of her clutches, till I speak double Dutch to a real double Dutchess. Um, it's not, you know, if you start to look at some of it too closely, it's it's just sort of clever, clever, but it's, also got this real heart to it and the you know the transparent people who live on the other side living a life that is almost like suicide and it's about it's thinking about that like I'm realizing as I'm thinking about it when I hear this song I also think of you know later in the decade with King of America when he's really thinking about that and he he tells these stories on King of America especially in um, American Without Tears which is just about like the the story, a sort of you know um, almost stereotype story of the of the uh, young English woman falling in love with the American GI and you know going back finding themselves crossing the ocean and ending up in America and feeling sort of at sea, feeling in exile, and it's something he just seems really interested in, probably because you know he's even at that point, he might not have been living in both places, but he was soon to be in that sense of just feeling not at home where you're supposed to be at home or that you're never at home, that I think he captures really well uh, here. Yes, and he does talk about that in interviews, doesn't he? His own sense of belonging, that he finds it in places like Liverpool and Birkenhead with his family history, not necessarily where he was born uh, and brought up and then, of course, hasn't lived in Britain for for a long long time now and Mm. um, yeah I think the personal is coming out I think in lines like that in my interpretation of it anyway. And mine also I just I love New York to death I didn't grow I grew up as I said in suburbs outside of Philadelphia going to New York City was like a huge Mm. you know thrill and that sense of this song about New York and using the old Dutch name is just it's part of it too it's just yeah so so this is the one I ended up going for but as I said I could have gone for dozens more yeah yeah no it's a great song I actually I think I heard this first is the Tasman Archer version of it before 
before I'd heard oh, the really? Elvis version because uh-huh. what would that have been about 93 or something I was only just getting into Elvis then as a schoolboy and mm-hmm. um, I was catching up on the back catalogue and I hadn't got to get happy by that point so I'd only heard uh, Tasman Archer's very good cover version of it and then mm-hmm. got the Elvis one and, and loved that as well Elvis describes it as a fluke recording that came out of a demo session in a 15 quid an hour studio in Pimlico attempts to recreate the mood with the entire band failed so my solo effort was included on the album you're listening to dangerous amusements a piece of stale bread curling on the luncheon counter of life You mentioned King of America, and I think, wasn't that your first ever music review was of King of America in your university days? It was. It was because it was very, it was when I was, um, yeah, I think I was a senior in college. What year, that would have been like 86 or 87, a junior, a third year um, in a four years in America. And there was this great music magazine called Nadine that had just been started up, which now lots of people who, who wrote for it went off and wrote for right for Rolling Stone and did, you know, became kind of music journalists. Um, that year was amazing because it was Blood and Chocolate and King of America. Um, and there were really weird uh, reviews that came out when he did, he released um, Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood as the first single off of it. And someone, I think, in the NME was like, this is the end of Elvis. It's all over. It's, uh, you know, there were these sort of, and then the album came out. It was absolutely brilliant, or at least I felt. I know different people felt differently about it. But one line I remember, and that did sound, you know, a slight pretentious college student, but I was like, if I, I wrote, um, if Elvis was a brilliant mistake, then this is one fantastic whiteout job, you know, and like, <laughs> like whiteout as the thing you used to cover up yeah. stuff back when you were typing with. So it was just this, but it, it really hit me. And I wasn't like a huge fan of his country stuff, you know, of uh, like, I liked it, um, uh, and, you know, however much I lied and, you know, Good Year for the Roses, there was great stuff on that. But this really, it, it just, it, I was like, wow, he could do whatever he wants and in all these different styles and, mm. and um, love the album. So, and then the fact that it, a lot of it was about America was interesting to me too, or that sort of, um, it still has, of course, the whole album has all those, you know, you can see him being the old, not the old Elvis, but that, that you know, they, she said she was working for the ABC News. It was as much of the alphabet as she knew how to use. Like it hasn't disappeared, that that sense of, you know, sneer, very funny sneering. Um, but there's there's just so much more going on there. Yeah. Um, and Imperial Bedroom is another big landmark record for you as well. Imperial Bedroom was, yeah, I absolutely. And I, I know you've had people, I think, do obviously talk about Beyond Belief and Man, Man Out of Time. The whole album, though, was one that I listened to over and over in high school. And it's really interesting to me now because it's like it's an album about a divorce. It's a very grown up kind of album, but it, it, there was something about that really got to me as well. Okay, let's move into the 1990s and we'll take your choice of track for the playlist for this one and we're going to very popular album on this podcast, Brutal Youth. I'm just a bad lad that anyone wants was more than just a passing acquaintance I'm just a bad lad that it was a memory that doesn't even 
So just about glad I I was really torn between this and all the rage, which I also mm. love. In fact, there's there's I think the whole album is great. There's a lot of really great stuff on this yeah. album. Um, but just about glad for me, it, in kind of it was a throwback song. I, I think I probably I can't honestly remember. But it, it just probably hit me in one of those moments where I was having a, you know, a romantic thing that didn't go quite right. And it's just such a sort of like, you know, just about glad we didn't do that thing is it, kind of a universal thing. I, you know, it's a feeling that many of us had and that I think one of people go to listen to Elvis those moments where, you know, romantic things are are not working out and you're feeling kind of angry, but you're not quite sure who to feel angry towards. Um, it's incredibly catchy. And yeah, it, it in some ways it feels sort of minor, but it was just one that I really loved, um, hit me at the right time. Mm. So I might not have that much interesting to say about it. I don't know. What do you think? Tell me. (laughs) No, I really like it as well. I like the whole album, to be honest. I think it's a a terrific record, Brutal Youth, released in March 1994. I think one of the most interesting things about this song is the fact that Elvis wrote it, or at least the outline of it, on the same day as Rockin' Horse Road, Pony Street, Mm. Clown Strike, Still Too Soon to Know, and 13 Steps Lead Down. That is a pretty productive day, isn't it? Oh my God, that's astounding. That it, that that almost does make me feel like it's some kind of pathology, like he can't stop writing, you know, because yeah. those are fantastic songs and it is really full of great lyrics and uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's very in the spirit of the album as well, isn't it? Because he's got, um, obviously on some tracks, Bruce Thomas is back. He's got on this track, Nick Lowe playing bass with Steve and Pete on there as well. It's very direct, isn't it? um, You can see why people at the time who wanted to hark back to those early Attractions records got so much out of Brutal Youth with tracks like this. I feel like throughout his career... Elvis, obviously, he wants to go off in a million different directions musically, and he has the chops to do it in so many different ways. But he never, he, and that's what I kind of love about the spinning wheel as well. Like, mm. he's always willing to go back to the thing, you know, the old favorites that people love and to go back to those styles and to, to sort of reinvent them too. So, yeah, Brutal Youth felt like a, re- like, and I hate the phrase return to form and I don't, <laughs> use it because the point you know the point is this is his form goes off in many different directions and and um i especially think it's funny when people use it about dylan for every single album he's put out <laughs> since yeah. you know blonde on blonde practically um but it with with elvis it's like it's not something that you ever really had to say but it was going back to like the people who loved him at first would love that album mm. yeah. Well, speaking of Dylan, again, as you just did, I know this period in the mid-90s also brought one of your, I think, all-time favourite gigs. Elvis opened for, and then later joined on stage, Bob Dylan to do I Shall Be Released, and you were there. Yeah, I was really lucky. It was in Brixton in 1995. I I sent it to you. I'm very bad with dates, so I had to do a lot of looking up things. And um, it is amazing now that you can look up the set lists of gigs you were at and really I so I was trying to do that with my my many Elvis gigs but this one was spectacular also Dylan was on fantastic form as well right. but that moment I, I it's funny I 
just remember the two of, and they were my two heroes. You know, they were my like at that point the two musicians I listened to the most, and to see them together like that, and just this sort of Dylan kind of looking over at Elvis who was singing. I shall be released better than he could at that point was there was something really and with it there was just something really lovely about the whole thing it was very it was very emotional for me um I think the night that I wasn't there there was there I think he played a couple nights at least and the, the Brixton you know it's it's not big it was you could really be up close um but the I think the other night like Carol King and all these other people were there and it was a big bang and the night I was there it was just the two of them and I and and the fact that you can go and, and find the link to it and relive that is fascinating for me but it's certainly one of my my all-time Elvis seeing highs yeah yeah tell me about some of the other gigs that you've been to I know we're, we're going to talk about another one for your next song choice so we'll leave that one for a moment what about your other gig going history with Elvis Oh God! That this it gets in, in it can get very boring and train spottery. Very very. <laughs> I was thinking about it. I think I've seen. I'm almost sure now. I've seen Elvis more than anybody else. I can't quite count it up. I, there was a point where I would go see Jonathan Richmond whenever he played, and at okay. that point, I had seen Jonathan Richmond many 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 times, and then I sort of stopped. And so, but I've continued to see Elvis. One of the first times I saw him, I think not the very first, was he played a um, at the uh, Tower Theater in Philadelphia. It was a solo show. It was before Goodbye Cruel World came out, but it was close to that. Um, and I just, it was great to see him solo like that. Although I, you know, also loved him with the attractions, but he was doing things like Peace in Our Time and Inch by Inch. And I was, uh, in a way it was a slate, like when the album came out, it was like, oh, these songs should have been produced slightly differently, you know, because they were, it was, they were amazing songs um, and they didn't quite translate on the album in the way I expected to them by seeing that. So that's a terrible first story to tell. Um, about <laughs> like, oh, yeah, he wasn't that great. Actually, he's almost always been pretty spectacular. And then it was actually in 1986, I was on a junior semester abroad in the autumn of 19 in London. And my friend Suzanne, who I was telling you about, she was there as well we were both in London together we went to see him one night at the Royalty Theatre um, where he was doing this thing where you would get either him solo or him with the attractions or this thing called the spinning wheel which we'd never heard of and weren't quite sure what we were getting into so we went the first night and I think it was him with the attractions it was amazing and then I just went back two more nights bought scalped tickets for ridiculous amounts of money and got to see him do the spinning wheel for the first time which I I totally loved yeah. so um I have a lot of stories my other can I tell you one more Elvis story this <laughs> That's is what such we're a here good for. place for this so then in 1995 I was living at that point in Cambridge I think um but I was in England sort of pursuing career stuff career education stuff in various ways and he was the director of the meltdown at the South Bank Center um, and he was talking about films he'd been in or been involved with, with a film critic. And when they asked for questions from the audience, I was just like, I'm going to ask a quest. I have to <laughs> speak to Elvis Costello. Um, and I asked him because I, I, I asked him about there's a really 
fleeting use of accidents will happen in the movie et do you know about this i'm sure of course you know about this (laughs) um the older brother comes into a room singing it and there's a poster of elvis on the wall so i think i asked him if he got any royalties for that (laughs) i I, and he said to me he said well you're very observant aren't you to me and i was just like elvis costello (laughs) thinks i'm observant it was a great kind of moment so that's always a, a friend of mine who was with me said later like if you write your first book you should put very observant Elvis <laughs> Costello on the back. So, so uh, that's the only time I've ever spoken to him. <laughs> but, yeah. Just before we leave um, Bob entirely, I think I may have said this before on the podcast, but I think some of my favourite bits of unfaithful music and disappearing ink are the passages where Dylan is in them because he's this extraordinary person just doing really ordinary things. Like he sat with Elvis having a cup of coffee and... Of course he has cups of coffee, but I can't picture Bob Dylan just sitting down and having a cup of coffee. And what are they talking about? Like, what normal things does Bob Dylan talk about? It's That's that's really interesting. It reminds me of that, you know, there's this podcast which is all about the Beatles drinking tea, like yes. pictures of the Beatles <laughs> drinking tea. And that I, I mean, when you say that about Dylan, I think one more cup of coffee. He's probably, yeah, you know, it's yeah. a, he's got a song about it too. But yeah, the sort of the bits of ordinary life that you get. Um, with, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you know, one thing I dearly wish they'd done together was if Bob had have been one of Elvis's guests on Spectacle. And I know he was, Elvis mm. said he was on the wish list but he knew straight away even though they were friends Dylan was never going to do that but I would have loved to have seen that because I think you could imagine Dylan responding really positively to Elvis in the way that say Lou Reed did when he was on there I think that that would have been absolute box office I think that was a great show. I yeah. really, you know, it makes me, talking to you about it makes me think we have the, you know, the box set downstairs somewhere. I haven't watched it in ages. And there was so much he did with that. That would have been a real. And then like one of the other things I was, I was going to ask you about talking about just because when Elvis does cover versions, they're so good too. And one of my favorite of his is I, I threw it all away. Like, mm. you know, I, I threw it all away. His doing Dylan or his do, you know, he's so, he picks out great songs to do and then, they're incredibly moving and they sound like Elvis songs too. So yeah. that kind of connection between them is is interesting. Absolutely. And in fact, the version he does on Spectacle of I Threw It All Away, I think is fantastic. I mean, it's a good it, version yeah. on Kojak Variety, but I love that version of him no, just doing it's it not. I, li- I like the one on Spectacle even better. I think it's it really, and it reminds me because I think that is one he did in my, that first solo concert I saw uh, from him in 1984 when, when you know, in the, the pre-Goodbye Cruel World moment. And I think I, I definitely did not know the Dylan song at that point at all. It was not one of the Dylan albums I listened to. So I went and found it after that and just sort of, I assumed it was an Elvis song and thought this is amazing and then realized, which is one of the nice things with covers when you, you recognize you got it wrong. Yes. Yeah. And actually you've preempted something that we're going to be doing very shortly. We do have a bonus episode coming on its way where we are going to look at some of the best cover versions that Elvis has done in his career as well. So I'm sure that will prompt a bit of debate as well because there's so much to choose from, but uh, that's one to look out for very soon. Bells are chiming for victory There's a page back in history 45 They came back to the world that they fought for Didn't turn out just like they thought Here is the song to sing To do the measuring 
we move into the new century. More great music to choose from, and in the 2000s category, you've gone for a track from When I Was Cruel, released in April 2002, and that's 45. This is a just one of those songs where he's doing the thing with one word that means so many different things. So you've got his age, you've got this question about aging, you've got obviously the, and he loves talking about um, the physical album or the single, you know, and the fact that that's in there, you've got a gun, you've got 1945 and the, you're back to that post-war moment for England. Um, there's just so much kind of like packed in here. Uh, I also really like the video, you know, I like the, the, the video of him pushing along this, 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 it, it, what is he's pushing along a shopping cart, people are just taking clocks out until there's nothing left. And he's in his kind of magician Napoleon dynamite outfit, his his look, and then that sense of sort of giving out and giving out and giving out that you get there. Um, it's really, it's just a, it was a, a great moment oh, he says i think there's a stack of shellac and vinyl which is yours now and which is mine so it's about like splitting up to it has a very um in that way it's very much a kind of nick hornby high fidelity moment too so yeah it's just just one of those songs that really hit me from a period where i was getting like i just still good would always go see him but i was you know looking to the old stuff and and this was just a great song yeah this song was also picked by Jeremy Vine when he was on in the previous season. And I have to say, you've not sung as much as Jeremy on your episode so far. So I, there's plenty of time for you to do that, Pam. It's fine. <laughs> I am I'm pleased to tell all your listeners that they do not have to fear that from me. It really would not be. It's, it's something I would do in my house as a teenage girl stomping around singing, I'm not angry really loudly. Um, but you will not have to put up with that. So. <laughs> okay. Well, I know another aspect of 45 one of the reasons you picked it is you got to see one of his I imagine one of his first performances of it which would have been back at the Royal Festival Hall for another meltdown appearance this was uh, Robert Wyatt's curation of it I think yeah it? there might have been two separate moments we might have been playing the Royal Festival Hall a couple of times that that year but the the Robert Wyatt one was great there was him there was Nick Cave there were all these other people you know and and at that point yeah, 45 was this totally new song that I had not heard, had, you know, um, recorded before. And it was just, it really struck me. There was one bit where he was doing a lot with beatboxes. Yeah. And, you know, there's always that moment where people are like, can we please go back to, I don't want to go to Chelsea. You know, there's this <laughs> sort of like, and then, and it's like, no, he's doing cool new stuff. So, yeah, but I remember, I remember that performance when was the first time you saw him is it okay am I allowed to ask you questions absolutely too? <laughs> yeah well do you know what I was thinking earlier I'm probably coming up for the 20th anniversary of when I was cruel saw him at um uh Mountford uh, Hall in Liverpool because I'd sort of got into him as a schoolboy in the 90s but I didn't really go to many gigs until probably I'd finished university to be honest because didn't have a huge amount of money and what money I had was spent going out or going to watch football so uh, going to see him live didn't really come around until when I was cruel but I've probably seen him 
well over 20 times since then. And like you, I'm very rarely disappointed. I think he always mm. puts on a great show in whatever format he chooses. I love the solo shows when it's just him. I love the full band um, performances. And then, you know, things like the spinning wheel are just great formats for a show as well. So, yeah, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing him again this summer. We've got, uh, in fact, we were talking about this yesterday, weren't yes. we? I've got, I've got <laughs> Elvis on the Friday night at the Liverpool Philharmonic. And I'm, I'm going to warm up the night before with the Rolling Stones because I've heard they're, they're okay as a warm-up act. act. Good opening <laughs> act. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to see him twice in in June. And like the one in Bexhill, I think he's in conversation, which I'm really oh, yes, yes, excited yes. about. It's a slightly different, although I'm not even sure what the format is. But, but yeah, I, I, I get to this point, you know, I'm in my mid to late 50s now and I'm always like, oh, am I still going to go? Am I going to make it out for more gigs? And then I'm like, no, it's Elvis. I'll, I'm always, I'm never going to retire from seeing, yeah. seeing Elvis. Um, but the, the spinning wheel is really interesting because I don't know if you've been at gigs where, at, where the spinning wheel is happening and someone just like gets the, their free choice and then just chooses Allison yeah, or, yeah, you yeah. know, like something when you're just like, you're not like, you're looking at people who are up on the stage and you're like, that could be me. Yes. You know, there's always a sort of element of you're not a real fan. I would be up there choosing, yeah, Stations of the Cross or something right, uh, really exactly. off the wall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't waste a spin. <laughs> don't waste it. You wasted your choice. <laughs> Last lines walked for the tent I stood out in the glorious rain Knowing full well I can't go home again Why as a ghost Why as a When you're gonna rise up Why as a ghost so our final song choice uh, today, Pam, coming from 2010 onwards, and you've gone to the album Wise Up Ghost and other songs, and the title track, Wise Up Ghost. So I've got to be honest about this. I, you know, I, I haven't listened to it as much as any of the other songs I've I've chosen. Um, I like the album. I love that he was working with Questlove and I thought he was doing all these interesting things in terms of remixing, stealing from himself and kind of going over his history. But this is the one that just really hit me from that album. And yeah, it just, it, it, it's partly about this desire of his, which I just find really like refreshing to to keep changing. I mean, you're going to see the Stones. I love the Stones. The Stones have not, have they found a formula early on and they've stuck to it. Yeah. Um, sometimes past the sell-by date in terms of certain things about it. And Elvis is like, just never done that. Um, and yeah, and, and Questlove is, I also like the idea of him and Questlove kind of speaking to each other because like his new, um, the, the movie Summer of Soul that he did is really spectacular. Mm. And he's he's just like another one of those people who writes really interestingly about his relationship to music. And you can, you know, it's just like they're they're sparking off each other in a really good way. So Yeah. This one written by the two of them and Stephen Mandel, released in September 2013. And I think this is 
one of the most effective tracks in terms of using music from elsewhere in his career because obviously mm. that musical introduction from Can You Be True on North that only mm. kind of comes in fleetingly on that track on North whereas here it is uh, sort of reimagined as being the soundscape for the whole track and I just think it works so well it's slightly apocalyptic isn't it the sound and then those you know the last lions roar before they're tamed it's uh, it's a big old sound it really is. Apocalyptic is a really good word for it, too. The whole the album has this sound of it. Um, yeah, and it is interesting because I'm not North has never been one of my go to ones. But the but it, it, it is when he picks up on things and you realize like, yeah, that was actually really good. There was there was more to do with that, too. And how are you getting on with the boy named if we've had a little I, bit of time to live with it now? I have to say I've been way too busy at work to give it the proper amount of attention that it deserves. I was very excited about it and I know I will kind of get back to it. Um, what are the tracks do you think are the best ones that I should should go back to with more with more care? Well, I love the new record. I absolutely yeah. think it's fantastic. And I, I don't say that with sort of, you know, blinkered glasses on as a fan. Mm. I don't say that about every record he brings out, you right. know, but I do think this is genuinely a, a a terrific album. I love the title track. Uh, I think that's such a good song. And the difference, I think, is difference. I think is yeah. one of the best things. I really like that this sort of sense that there's something slightly that just thinking about, I mean, I guess the age of his own kids or thinking about sons and thinking about the child's perspective that's really interesting on it, as well as the sound, which is immediately grabbing too. So, but I just felt like I was. I decided to go to for Wise Up Ghost instead of just grabbing something off the new album because I felt I would have been cheating and it would have been it would have been clear that you know I hadn't I hadn't really given it enough time. But as I said, I mean my my initial desire was to choose like twenty more songs from the seventies and eighties, <laughs> which is a little bit unfair. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Oh, well, I think in the next season we'll have had enough time to live with um, The Boy Named If to open up a sixth mm. category and we'll have the 2020s <laughs> as its own category then. So, yeah, so we'll see what people can come up with for that one as it's well. But, um, no, this has been really good fun, Pam. And you've got Great. lots to look forward to. Those Elvis performances, the In Conversation and a bit more time with The Boy Named If. So lots to look forward to. My, my life is good. Thank you, Stu. This was incredibly fun to do. Thank you, Pam. She is at Pam Thur on Twitter, P-A-M-T-H-U-R. Her website is pamthurshwell.com. My website's dangerousamusements.co.uk, where you can find my episodes, playlists, and articles. Follow and get in touch on socials at Dangerous Amuse on Twitter, Dangerous Amusements on Instagram. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts to help other people find it. Thanks for listening, thanks to Pam for coming on, and thanks to Gary Mulcahy for performing the theme music. You've been listening to Dangerous Amusements. Go on your merry way now, if you must. <laughs>